Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. This is going to be fairly full on, so I need to ask you to ensure that your seat belt is securely fastened, your tray table stowed, and your seat in the fully upright position. And if an oxygen mask appears in front of you, things have gone really badly wrong. <laughs> if I appear a bit um, more unbalanced than normal uh, in terms of position on the stage, uh, it's just trying to assist the videoing for anyone in the cafeteria or viewing online. It's not just that I want to keep a close eye on the band, but I do. <laughs> Climate change. A hot topic, excuse the pun. An emotive topic, a highly politicised topic, a really important topic. An area where we need to apply wisdom and think biblically, not just be swept along by worldly opinions. So today, you're going to learn what Noah's flood has to do with climate change, why carbon dioxide is essential for life on Earth, and why consensus has no place in science. I do need to tread carefully here because by even bringing this issue up for discussion, we can very quickly be labelled climate change deniers, which personally I'm not, and have our views just dismissed out of hand. But it's important that we get informed around this issue. I'm not going to tell you what you should think. You need to make up your own mind. But I hope to bring you some information and perspective that you're unlikely to hear in the mainstream media. As I said this, uh, before, this is an emotive issue. Uh, it's possible I may upset or offend some of you. Just know that that's not my intent. I only ask that you approach this with an open mind. What I'm trying to do is to offer a biblical as well as a scientific perspective to allay unnecessary fears and to balance or counter some of the extremism and alarmism that has become mainstream belief. The Creation Ministries International have produced a very substantial report which is published on creation.com under the title Anthropogenic Global Warming. Much of what I'm presenting today comes from that report, so if you want more, if you want to dig in a bit deeper, investigate more in depth or check out sources, please go to creation.com and look it up. On the subject of climate change, I was recently talking to a friend who lives in Edmonton, Canada. She said that since early in the morning, the snow has been nearly waist high, it's still falling. The temperature is 18 below zero, the north wind is increasing to near gale force. Wind chill is minus 30. She said her husband has done nothing but just look through the kitchen window and stare. She says that if it gets much worse, she may have to let him in. <laughs> Today we're discuss discussing global warming or climate change said to be caused by human-generated carbon dioxide, known as anthropogenic global warming, AGW. Some very frightening views about the future are being expressed, and some equally frightening solutions. There is considerable pressure to conform to the prevailing view, which is that we are rapidly approaching a global crisis, and that urgent and drastic action is required immediately. Now, to understand this issue, we need to approach it from a biblical perspective and also look at what the science is telling us. Some terms that I'll use in the talk, the main topic being discussed is anthropogenic global warming, AGW. CO2 is carbon dioxide. The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The UN is the United Nations and the NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. A few points to help set the scene. 
When we talk about climate science, this is not operational science. Operational or experimental science is repeatable, it's measurable, there are well-defined laws that accurately predict the outcomes. Climate science is quite different. Scientists, both Christian and secular, are trying to interpret a limited data set from the past, make assumptions about what happened in the past, and extrapolate those assumptions into the future. But there are lots of unknowns involved in making predictions like this. Also, when you interpret the past through an incorrect worldview, evolution, long ages, and so on, you're extremely unlikely to be able to offer correct predictions about the future. Already we're seeing the failure of many of the secular predictions around climate change. Now, as Bible believers, we have a massive advantage in that we have a true record of the history of this planet. And God has also told us much about the future of it as well. So we take the biblical history and predictions and we fill in the gaps as best we can using a scientific approach. But it should always be Bible first. So I'm going to spend a bit of time first up laying out the biblical worldview. I want to make sure that we're well grounded in the biblical position before we launch into the science. So some relevant principles from the biblical worldview. We see in John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16 that the universe and earth were created through and for Jesus Christ. Genesis 1.28 and Isaiah 45.18 tell us that the earth was also created for mankind. He told us to fill the earth, that he created it to be inhabited. In, in Colossians 1.17 we read that Jesus holds his creation together. The implication being that if he removed his sustaining power, the whole universe would disintegrate. Genesis 2.15 and 1.28 tell us that mankind is called to steward God's creation. Stewardship is defined as managing or looking after someone else's property. Note that this dominion mandate was not revoked by the fall or by Jesus' first coming. We also see in Romans 1, 21 to 23, that we are to worship the creator, not the creation, not Gaia, not Mother Earth. So I want to be very clear that as Christians, we have a responsibility to look after the environment or to steward God's creation. We are also compelled to consider the poor and the general welfare of our neighbours. This may not seem that relevant to the climate debate, but what we find is that the poor are under real threat from some of the proposed solutions to climate change. To create some more background, I'll just expand a bit now on the biblical worldview and some of the implications that we can derive from it. It's important that we affirm the timeframes provided in the Bible, including that the universe was created around 6,000 years ago and the reality of a global flood about four and a half thousand years ago. This is highly relevant to changes in the Earth's climate, as we'll see. We've already seen that God commanded humans to fill the Earth and to steward and care for or rule over the Earth. The Bible is clear that we are not a disease or a plague on the Earth, as has been suggested by some environmentalists. The false idea that the earth functioned perfectly well for hundreds of millions of years before humans arrived leads to suggestions that the complete removal of humans 
will allow the environment to function much better. That's not God's plan. We've already seen examples where the removal of human intervention has caused disasters. For example, the 2019 bushfires in Australia caused in part by lack of fuel reduction and firebreak maintenance in the cool season. And also national parks in Africa turning to desert when grazing uh, cattle herds were excluded. The global flood I mentioned earlier provided the perfect conditions to create the ice age and associated climate changes. Scientists who deny the flood struggle to explain the ice age and must instead blame CO2 as a greenhouse gas to explain climate change. The amount of vegetation buried in the flood, which is the coal that we dig up today, suggests that CO2 levels before the flood were very high, up to 15 times higher than today. And we don't find any evidence of a runaway greenhouse effect cooking the earth from those high CO2 levels. These high pre-flood CO2 levels would have enhanced plant productivity hugely and therefore animal productivity as well. And the size of some fossils and the amount of coal suggest that the earth was hugely productive before the flood. Looking back in history, the earth appears to have a stable climate system. There have been some warm periods in the past that could have had nothing to do with human-generated CO2. During the Roman warm period, Temperatures were 2 degrees C above the current temperatures for that region of the Earth. The medieval warm period was also warmer than now. The Little Ice Age was a significant period of cold, causing famines, plagues and widespread poverty, from which the Earth also recovered. The Bible also tells us that the Earth's weather is ultimately under God's control, not mankind's. We see in Scripture where he has ordained weather changes as judgment or blessing. So, how do we approach and form opinions around this kind of issue? When an issue is as highly politicised as this one, it can be challenging to find reliable information. But there are some lines of, of investigation that we can try to take to discern the truth behind the rhetoric. My suggestions are try to determine the motives or agendas of the groups involved. No one is unbiased. Don't be swayed by consensus arguments like everyone believes this. The majority have been wrong many times in the past, even in science. We'll touch on this again a bit later. Try to find direct data sources that can't have been manipulated. And most importantly, always view the issue through the lens of the Bible. So... Is our climate changing? It's reasonable to expect changes in the conditions on our planet. Both the Bible and science tell us to expect this. Looking at the Bible first, it tells us that the earth won't exist as it is forever and is winding down, decaying and deteriorating. Psalm 102, 25 to 26, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the earth's foundation and created the heavens. They will all disappear and wear out like clothes. You change them as you would a coat, but you last forever. Isaiah 51, 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to, at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. Romans 8, 20 to 22, 
the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So the Bible tells us that the planet is degrading. Science also tells us to expect change. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that without the input of intelligence and energy, everything tends to decay. All systems tend to go from order to disorder or chaos. We see the second law at work in every arena, from buildings and machines requiring constant maintenance to our own declining bodies, ultimately resulting in physical death. So we shouldn't be surprised at the claim, at the claim that things are changing on planet Earth. An informed Christian should already be expecting it. Returning again to the evidence that the Earth appears to be quite a stable system, we hear scary stories of an irreversible and catastrophic point of no return. But this modelling is based on a non-biblical and a false history of the world. A few points around this issue. Firstly, this type of future modelling is notoriously difficult and involves lots of assumptions. Secondly, looking back at history, we know that Noah's flood was a massive event, having a huge impact on the planet, including its climate. In fact, all the evidence suggests that the flood induced an ice age from which the Earth obviously recovered. That's a big temperature change. Thirdly, we know that there has been a significantly different climate in parts of the world in the past compared to what we see today. Michael Ord, an atmospheric scientist, tells us that both creation and secular geologists agree that the Earth's deserts and semi-arid areas were once well watered. And he says, today the Sahara Desert is also one of the hottest and driest places on Earth, but field and satellite pictures record evidence of ancient large lakes and rivers. Dr. Carl Whelan says, the remains of some of these rainforest plants are found mummified in what are now searing deserts. The Sahara is also universally agreed to have been a lush, wet place in the past. So I'm actually a believer in dramatic climate change. It's already happened in the history of this planet. This strongly supports the notion that the Earth's climate has been designed to be a stable system and is perhaps more resilient to change than we've been led to believe. What about the claim that there is no plan B? The founder of Earth Day, Gaylord Nelson, states, the fate of the living planet is the most important issue facing mankind. And you'll find many people going on record with similar statements. There is actually a plan B. Not because God's plan A wasn't a good one, but because we messed things up and he's graciously provided another plan. As Christians, we already know that our ultimate future doesn't rest on this planet remaining as it is. If we're focused on the earth as our ultimate destination, we're missing the boat. 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, now that we've established the biblical foundation, let's uh, dig a bit more into the science and the findings of the Creation Ministries investigation. I'm going to skim briefly over a whole range of different topics that relate to this issue. I'm going to fire a lot of data at you, so you may want to do some brain limbering up exercises. You ready? Firstly, what are the real motives driving the climate change lobby? The answer will probably surprise you. 
Statements by leaders in the climate change lobby show that they are not concerned primarily with the environment, but are trying to drive political and philosophical change. A couple of quotes. For a mainstream view, have a listen to Ottmar Edenhofer, a German economist and official on the IPCC. He said in 2010, but one must say clearly that we redistribute de facto the Earth's wealth by climate policy. Obviously, the owners of coal and oil will not be enthusiastic about this. One has to free oneself from the illusion that international climate policy is environmental policy. This has almost nothing to do with the environmental, sorry, nothing to do with environmental policy anymore, with problems such as deforestation or the ozone hole. That's a stunning admission. For a non-mainstream view, Stuart Basden, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, said in 2019, and I'm here to say that Extinction Rebellion isn't about the climate. He said the climate's breakdown is a symptom of a toxic system that has infected the ways we relate to each other as humans and to all life. He goes on to say that Extinction Rebellion is about fixing the system. That is, it's about destroying Western society. One reason for applying some scepticism to extreme climate change predictions is the spectacular failure of many of the past predictions. In the 1970s, another ice age was predicted. This changed to fears of global warming, and when the temperatures didn't rise as predicted, it morphed into climate change. In 1989, the UN warned us that entire nations will be wiped out by the year 2000 if sea level rises are not stopped. Tuvalu, a Pacific Ocean nation of island atolls, is frequently raised as being under threat. However, Tuvalu has increased in land area 3% over the last 40 years. In 2007, Dr. Tim Flannery, head of the Australian government's climate change unit, predicted insufficient rainfall to fill the Australian reservoirs. Due partly to this advice, desalination plants to convert salt water to fresh were built in three Australian states at huge expense. Two of them have never been used. In 2008, Dr. Flannery said, just imagine yourself in a world five years from now where there is no more ice over the Arctic. And Al Gore also predicted in 2008 that the polar ice would be gone by the summer of 2014. There has been some reduction in Arctic sea ice, but nothing like the predictions and some fluctuation in the amount of Arctic sea ice is normal. Other emotive and dire predictions are designed to garner public support for radical action on climate change. For example, that polar bear numbers would decline, possibly to extinction. The polar bear population since 2005 has been stable, or may even have risen. Many other predictions of mass extinctions, increasing droughts, decreased food production, increasing frequency and intensity of cyclones, hurricanes, typhoons, increasing number and intensity of tornadoes, decreasing snowfall, have failed and lack any basis in objective science. The media and climate change activists are also quick to label every extreme weather or environmental event as unprecedented and caused by climate change. This is demonstrably wrong in many cases for example, again, the 2019 Australian bushfires. Previous fire seasons have been significantly more damaging in terms of lives lost and area burned. So, 
How scientific is climate science? A basic tenet of science is that you can do repeatable experiments. The heart of the scientific method is that hypotheses can be tested with experiments. However, it's not possible to design a repeatable experiment to test climate change hypotheses because of the size, complexity, and uniqueness of the system. There's only one planet Earth, and it's rather complicated. The observable data shows us that the global surface temperature has been increasing, as has the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. This is not proof, however, that one has caused the other. Correlation does not necessarily mean causation. Climate science computer modeling has improved, but is still far from giving predictions with a high level of certainty. Also, scientists are not as objective as many believe. Science is often driven by a ruling paradigm where data that doesn't fit the paradigm is dismissed or treated as errors. This can be unconscious or deliberate. And peer review of scientific publications doesn't necessarily guarantee truth. Sadly, there have been many examples of the failure of the peer review process. Now, please understand that these points are not intended as a beat-up of scientists, but more as a reality check around the limitations of science, particularly evident in an area like climate science. So, what are the actual numbers? Graphs like this one tend to instill a bit of panic in people, but a couple of points to note. Firstly, the vertical axis is hugely stretched, which makes things look much more dramatic. The entire vertical axis of the scale of that graph is one degree Celsius. Secondly, there has certainly been some warming, but much of it occurred too early to be blamed on human-generated CO2. And thirdly, the graph shows sustained warming since 1970, but that didn't continue. This official Met Office graph, released in 2012, shows that there was no discernible temperature rise between 1997 and 2012. The graph was reported by the Daily Mail Online in the UK on the 13th of October 2012 with the subtitle, Global warming stopped 16 years ago, reveals Met Office report quietly released. And here's the chart to prove it. So what about the CO2 increase? Atmospheric CO2 has increased since 1860 from about 285 parts per million to 410 parts per million in 2020. The rate of rise is about two parts per million per year, or about a 50% rise over 160 years. The planet has warmed by about 0.8 degrees Celsius since 1880, and half of this warming occurred before there was any significant change in the CO2. So this part of the warming could not be due to human activity. So at most, 0.4 degrees Celsius can be blamed on humans. The debate is mainly over the role of humans in global warming. And the questions that need answering are, is human-generated CO2 contributing to the warming? If so, how much of the warming is due to human activity? Will the warming be enough to be of concern? And are the proposed means to counteract this going to do more harm than good? So what are the sources of CO2? The human contribution to carbon dioxide emissions through the burning of fossil fuels is less than 5% of the total global carbon budget. 
Other sources include changes in land use, deforestation, volcanoes, the weathering of rocks, the release of carbon dioxide from the oceans, and the breakdown of organic matter. So even if there was a massive reduction in human-generated CO2, it wouldn't have a large impact on temperature rise. Some other relevant information. Greenhouse gases are often portrayed as the enemy, but they're actually really important for the livability of planet Earth. Without them, the average temperature would be about 33 degrees C lower. In other words, we would be well and truly frozen. Now, the vast majority of that 33-degree warming effect of the greenhouse gases is due to water vapour. Only about 3.3 degrees, or 10%, is due to carbon dioxide. So if you do the math and combine that 10%, being the greenhouse effect of CO2, with the previous statistic of only 5% of CO2 being generated by humans burning fossil fuels, then only 0.5% is the maximum impact that humans burning fossil fuels can possibly have on the greenhouse effect. An important question that needs answering, does the rise in temperature align with the rise in CO2? The official graph shows that human-generated CO2 in the green line has risen steadily since 1880. But the global temperature in the black line has not. We can see several periods of cooling and warming over the same time period. Now, even if we isolate the warming periods shown by the thick red arrows, the rate of warming for each of them is very similar, despite dramatically different amounts of human-generated CO2. We are not seeing a claimed correlation between the increase in human-generated CO2 and the temperature rise. And this raises doubts about human-generated CO2 being the prime cause of global warming since 1880. Now you've probably heard it stated regarding climate change that the science is settled. Well I'm here to tell you very clearly, it's not. It's been claimed that 97% of scientists agree that human generated CO2 will cause catastrophic warming to planet Earth. Well even if that were true, it's not proof that the claim is correct. We see the same sort of claims around evolution. Science should be driven by repeatable findings not by consensus. As Michael Crichton said, consensus is the business of politics. If it's consensus, it isn't science. If it's science, it isn't consensus, period. But there are good reasons to doubt the 97% figure. 31,500 scientists in the USA alone, including 9,000 with PhDs, have signed the Global Warming Petition Project disputing the claim that CO2 will cause serious problems. The 97% statistic is a dishonest twisting of the data by climate activists, which was derived from 12,000 climate science papers. The study arrived at the 97% figure by including all papers that expressed the view that human-generated CO2 causes some warming, which is hardly big news, and announced that 97% of scientists agree that human-generated CO2 will cause catastrophic warming to planet Earth. It's not the same thing. The activists' own raw data show that very few scientists agree, even that most of the warming is due to human activity, let alone that it's dangerous. Regarding scientists who don't accept the consensus, in 2016 alone, over 500 papers were published in peer-reviewed science journals 
that seriously questioned the supposed consensus on climate change. Some high-profile scientists who dispute the alarmism include the following, and I won't read them all except to mention Judith Curry, who due to the craziness of the politicisation of climate science in 2017 took early retirement from her position as professor in the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech, USA, a position, a position she had held for 15 years. And there are many others. In September 2019, a global network of 500 prominent climate scientists and professionals stated that there is no climate emergency. Predicting the future temperature is difficult. The United Nations IPCC stated in 2001 that the climate system is a coupled, non-linear, chaotic system and therefore long-term prediction of future climate states is not possible. But then that's exactly what they proceeded to do. Because the science is so complex, over 100 different models have been used to try and predict future global temperatures. Now, a major test of these mathematical models is how accurately they have predicted global surface temperatures so far. It turns out that nearly all of them have failed badly and significantly over-predict global surface temperature response to, to rising CO2. On the graph, the grey lines are what the models have predicted. The black line is the average of all the models, and the green, blue and red lines are actual satellite measurements. You'll note also that the most recent trend shown on the graph, 2016 to 2018, shows cooling. This is another graph showing the difference between the IPCC models in red and the observed temperatures from weather balloons and satellites in blue and green. The models are wrong in what they have predicted for our current time frame, which indicates that the dire predictions about a coming global temperature crisis are also likely wrong. So what is the effect of increasing CO2 on global temperatures? The direct greenhouse effect of CO2 is generally agreed upon at about 1.1 degrees C increase for a doubling of the atmospheric CO2. Some would argue for less than that. However, this is not a linear relationship. The greenhouse effect reduces as more CO2 is added. The graph shown here is not an actual graph of the effect of CO2 increasing, but simply shows what a non-linear decreasing relationship looks like. So climate sensitivity decreases as the CO2 concentration increases. So why all the panic? Well, that's because the IPCC models add something called positive feedback. This assumes that increasing CO2 will result in warmer oceans and therefore more water vapour in the atmosphere, which will amplify the greenhouse effect. Positive feedback could be described as being like a vicious circle. So, is positive feedback happening? Dr David Evans formally advised the Australian Federal Government's Department of Climate Change from 1999 to 2005 and part-time from 2008 to 2010. He has six degrees related to modelling and applied mathematics, including a PhD from Stanford University. He resigned because he no longer believed that human-generated CO2 would cause a damaging temperature increase. He changed from being a warmist to a sceptic because of the scientific evidence. He used four unbiased sources of data. Global air temperatures from NASA satellites, 
Over 3,000 Argo boys that constantly, constantly patrol the oceans of the world, measuring the temperature profile of the oceans. Weather balloons, which have measured the temperature profile of the atmosphere since the 1960s, and outgoing radiation from the planet, as measured by satellite. So have the oceans warmed as expected to cause positive feedback? His data, the black line on the graph, shows almost no change in global ocean temperatures between 2003 and 2012 versus the red line, which is the IPCC predictions. Also, if positive feedback were operating due to increased water vapour in the atmosphere, there should be an atmospheric hotspot in the tropics. Global balloon data and satellite data show that this hotspot doesn't exist. These two points show us that positive feedback is not operating. In fact, the satellite data provides evidence for negative feedback or reduced climate sensitivity to increasing CO2. It would appear that we don't have to take any drastic action to limit the warming due to human-generated CO2 to less than 1.5 degrees C, which is the goal of the IPCC. Now we come to manipulation of data. Sadly, there is strong evidence that institutions in several countries have been adjusting land-based historical temperature records to support the case for a CO2-driven global warming. A linchpin in the data supposedly supporting global warming was the infamous hockey stick graph, which was very influential and used by IPCC policymakers. This graph was exposed as fraudulent. The medieval warm period was erased, as was the Little Ice Age. This gave the false impression of thousands of years of stability prior to recent warming. There have been proven instances of the deletion of high temperatures from past records. It appears that this kind of data tampering may be commonplace. Look at these two graphs covering almost the same time period. NASA's graph on the right-hand side has had a spike in the 1930s adjusted down, while a spike in the 1990s was adjusted up making it look like recent temperatures were unusually high when they were not at all. Environmentalist Tony Heller has shown that these changes are not justified and concluded that there is overwhelming evidence of fraud in NOAA and NASA's handling of climate data and it's very important that they are held to account. Also thousands of emails between climate scientists were leaked from East Anglia University which showed that they had deliberately manipulated and hidden data, resulting in the climate gate affair. A quick look now at rising sea levels, which is a major focus of the alarmist groups. Firstly, remember that there has been huge sea level change since Noah's flood, an estimated 68 metres higher than now, immediately after the flood, down to 50 metres below the current level, during the post-flood ice age. Also be aware that sea level change cannot be measured locally because some land masses are rising and some are sinking. The satellite measurements show a sea level rise of 3.3 millimetres per year, or 33 centimetres per 100 years. Obviously nothing to panic about. Note that there is an element of uncertainty in that figure. And we need to understand also that only melting of land-based ice sheets causes sea level rise. Melting of sea ice has no effect. If all the Arctic sea ice were to melt completely, producing an ice-free North Pole, this would create no sea level rise. 
NASA's satellite-based laser measurements of Greenland and Antarctic ice loss from 2003 to 2019 showed melting equivalent to a 14 millimetre sea level rise over 16 years. Another study of Antarctica showed only 14 millimetre sea level rise over 38 years. If all the Antarctic ice melted, we would be facing a massive 57 metre sea level rise. However, at current rates, that would take 82,000 years to occur. And again, we find evidence of fraudulently manipulated data to show an acceleration in the sea level rise. One example was a scientific paper that claimed that if the Denim Glacier in Antarctica melted, a global sea level rise of 1.5 metres would result. Fact-checking this claim reveals that even if all the glaciers on the planet melted completely, the global sea level rise would be 30 centimetres. So we are facing a small amount of sea level rise. But spending money on engineering solutions to cope with sea level rise makes much more sense than spending it on initiatives to reduce human-generated CO2 than the ice melting could well continue even if all human-generated CO2 were stopped immediately. Coral reefs feature high in climate alarmism rhetoric. The world's largest reef system, the Great Barrier Reef, has been the subject of many predictions, included its pr predicted disappearance within 20 years. One prediction in 2012 was that 90% of the living coral in the central and southern sections would be gone in just 10 years. Surveys of the reef since 1985 have shown evidence of damage from the crown of thorns starfish, sporadic damage due to cyclones, but little evidence of a downward trend in the amount of hard coral cover long term. Only 10% of the claimed losses of coral were attributed to bleaching, which is the only damage that could conceivably be linked to global warming. While coral bleaching is certainly related to high water temperatures, it's partly a natural consequence of the way coral reefs develop over time. The study of the long-term bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef from drill cores showed periods of severe bleaching going back to the 1700s, well before any recent global warming. Some other factors, other lines of thinking that should guide our approach. As I said earlier, many actions being demanded to prevent clim a climate emergency will hurt the poor the most. And instilling children with unnecessary fears about the future of the planet is tantamount to child abuse. As if our youth suicide stats weren't bad enough already. Also, there are benefits of increased CO2. CO2 is plant food and high levels of CO2 mean greater biomass production. Increased CO2 means plants use less water and can survive in drier climates. Deserts are becoming greener, largely because of this. Also, the single-minded focus on climate change means that other genuine environmental issues can be sidelined, like plastic in the ocean, heavy metals in drinking water, contamination of rivers. There are also some other agendas at play. Carbon credits are big business. There are opportunities for some people to make a lot of money. Also, researchers become reluctant to speak out against the misinformation because their funding is then at risk. We also see hypocrisy in the climate alarmism camp. Many climate alarmist celebrities fly everywhere in private jets, which have a very high carbon impact per passenger. 
A survey in 2017 of university staff in 59 countries found that those taking the highest amount of international travel for work were climate change researchers. And what we find is that the climate activists don't target the main offenders, like China, who are commissioning a new coal-fired power station every week. And of course, there are political agendas. Much of the misinformation is in effect using environmentalism to push for sweeping social and political change. The more radical parties are pushing for moves to depopulate the earth as a solution to the perceived problems. I notice that the people who advocate depopulating the planet never seem to lead by example and volunteer to be first in the queue. Interestingly, there have been some significant shifts in perspective. A growing number of former activists for radical action on climate change are reversing their position. One such activist for the global warming crusade is Michael Schellenberger. He was a long-time advisor to the IPCC and helped um, formulate Barack Obama's energy policy. In his book, Apoc Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, he reveals that he regrets being part of the fear campaign and apologizes for his role in scaring people, especially children, with the idea that climate change represented a global crisis and that the world will end soon unless it was addressed. He exposes many of the false claims and the unintended consequences for the environment. He still believes climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. So, to summarise the evidence, climate science has been corrupted by being politicised. CO2 levels have been rising over the last 100 years, but the temperatures over the same time period have not supported the idea that human-generated CO2 is the prime cause of the temperature rises. The science is not settled. There are over 100 models trying to predict global temperatures, and the predictions of the official climate models have failed. Positive feedback is not operating, so the warming from a doubling of the CO2 level is likely to be less than 1 degree C. This is less than the 1.5 degree warming set as a target by the IPCC. And 1 degree warming would actually be beneficial to life on Earth. The hyped up reporting of unprecedented natural disasters is not supported by the science. There is no persuasive evidence supporting a climate emergency and radical policies to limit CO2 will hurt the poor the most. Dr Don Batten states, the idea of dangerous climate change due to burning fossil fuels is unfounded in sound science and divorced from biblical history. Some dissenting voices, a significant number of people have been outspoken about their scepticism. Although the following quote is a bit dated, it sums up how many felt then and still do now. Douglas Carswell, Tory MP for Clacton, Essex, said in 2013, we're spending money that we don't have to solve a problem that doesn't exist at the behest of people that we didn't elect. A word of warning as we draw to a close. At the extreme end of the green movement, there are some very unbiblical and dangerous ideas. For example, the idea that humans are nothing special in the animal kingdom and can even be compared to a disease. The Bible makes it clear that not all life is equal. Human life stands above all other life. Human life is more precious to God because it reflects his own image. 
Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Beware also of the idea that nature itself is divine and to be worshipped. We need to avoid both extremes of abusing nature and worshipping nature. So what is our mandate? Are we called to steward this planet and everything on it? Yes. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it or take care of it. Is that permission to abuse it? No. Are we called to look after the earth in a sustainable manner? Absolutely. Should we be working to solve genuine environmental problems? Definitely. So what is God doing? Let me tell you what God is not doing. He's not looking down at this tiny planet and saying, ooh, what's happening down there? I didn't see that coming. Things are getting out of control, and I'm not sure what I can do about it. He is 100% in control, and his plans will play out exactly as he wants them to. So what do we do? Don't panic. There is no climate emergency. Don't induce unnecessary fear into children. Do look after our environment and encourage sustainable lifestyles. Guided by a Christian worldview, we should use our God-given intelligence and creativity to solve many of the real environmental issues. Do focus primarily on our eternal destination and taking others with us. A great source of additional information around this topic is the website creation.com where you'll find the report titled Anthropogenic Global Warming that I mentioned at the beginning, as well as thousands of other articles. I want to finish by quoting Stacia Byers along with the supporting Bible verses in case you want to look them up. She says, first, the fate of the planet is ultimately not in the hands of mankind. While humans are responsible for caring for the earth, we are not in control of the earth. Rather, it belongs to the creator himself who has made us his earthly stewards. Second, the fate of the living planet is not the most important issue facing mankind. Rather, the most important issue facing mankind is will the individual choose to acknowledge his creator and be reconciled to him? Romans 1.20 makes it clear that knowledge of God is at least at some level evident to all, so those who refuse to acknowledge their maker are without excuse. For Christians, the most important concern is that of sharing with others the good news about the creator who came to earth to redeem his creation from the curse of sin. So please, don't succumb to fear and panic about the climate. Our God is still on the throne and the earth is ultimately under his control. It's about finding a balance. Yes, we should be doing a better job of looking after the planet that we have been entrusted with. But I suggest to you that there is no climate emergency. And even if there were, that would not be the biggest problem facing the Earth's inhabitants. Our biggest problem is separation forever from the Creator who came to this planet, walked with us, and became the saviour. 
If you're thinking of people uh, not here who need to hear this message, please just uh, forward them the YouTube link for the service when it comes out. And Murdo has kindly printed off um, some paper sheets with the, the key points from this message that you can take away with you. There's some here and some in the cafe. Uh, and I'll hang around afterwards in case anyone has uh, further questions or comments. Thank you for listening.